Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 166. Well, we're 15 episodes deep into the Garrison story, and there's still a ways to go. The logical place to go next would be to tell you about some of the indiscretions that Garrison was attempting to defend against, such as the botched second lie detector test taken by Perry Russo, or the bribery charge leveled by Al Bobuff. Garrison had his hands full after the NBC white paper, and he was forced to up his game and go on a PR offensive, elevating his communication strategy and seeking more national forums to make his case. Once those tactics were elevated to that level, Garrison would stay there. Perhaps just exactly what Garrison was looking for. With the cat out of the bag, so to speak, what better than to be talking to all of America? Heck, all of the world. And whatever other aspirations he had, whatever political aspirations were there in the background, no doubt that such national exposure would help on that front too. Garrison would grant Playboy magazine an interview an interview that is now infamous in some ways when telling the Garrison story. Yes, all of those are logical next episodes for us in the sequence that is Garrison. And we will get to them, each of them. But you're hanging with me on this one, and we're just not going to do those next. We're going to do something else, but I think you'll like it. And it's still part of the Garrison story as well. In the past, I've asked for input on what material you would like to ensure that I cover before this series comes to an end. And many of you listening have been after me for a while to cover the mysterious deaths that occurred and involved witnesses in this case, the case of the JFK assassination. It's an intriguing subject, and of course, that too is a sizable discussion in and of itself. And it's coming too. Along with that, some of you have asked about the tantalizing stories of the handful of people who purportedly had foreknowledge of the assassination and who also said something to others about it. Fortunately, there's an intersection of the Garrison case, a case of the mysterious murders, and a case of someone who had foreknowledge and said something. And it's all wrapped up in one character, Rose Jeremy. In fact, she was such a fascinating character that a vignette of her story became the opening scene in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. So today, we are going to tell the story of Rose Jeremy. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 166 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The date was November 20th, 1963, and in two days, the president, President Kennedy, 
would be assassinated in Dealey Plaza. Only a small group of people in this world knew that such a heinous act was in the works already. Rose Cheremy seemingly was one of them. Was Cheremy's story real or simply an incoherent rant from a poor soul who was undergoing withdrawal from heroin use? Either way, it seemed almost unbelievable, this story of Rose Cheremy. And it begins that day on Highway 190 in Louisiana, where she suffered injuries after she was purportedly thrown out of a car and onto the road for some unknown reason by two men traveling with her. She was taken to nearby Musa Hospital in Eunice, Louisiana. Luckily, these particular accident injuries seemed inconsequential. Cuts and scrapes, mostly, and minor compared to the problem that was really now front and center in Rose Jeremy's life. Drug addiction. Given that her injuries were relatively minor, and she was also uninsured and seemingly without a capability to pay, the hospital administrator, Mrs. Louise Guillory, was anxious to have Jeremy transferred from this private hospital to another venue. Lieutenant Francis Frugier of the Louisiana State Police was the lucky policeman that night who received a phone call from Mrs. Guillory. Likely because Guillory knew that Frugier worked the narcotics detail and it was her feeling that this woman was under the influence of drugs. In reality, she was a heroin addict and was beginning to undergo withdrawal. It was later learned that she had been on heroin for nine years and was withdrawing from her last heroin injection and she had gotten about 2 p.m. that day on the 20th of November. Mrs. Guillory would call Frugier and tell him that there was an accident victim in the emergency ward and Frugier headed to the hospital. What he encountered when he got there was a white woman, middle-aged, who was only partially coherent. But she was coherent enough to give her name to Frugier. And it was Rose Cheremy. And Francis was familiar with Rose as a local. She had bumps and bruises and scrapes, but otherwise seemed to be intact. Without warning, Rose began to tell some fantastic stories to Frugier. The president was going to be killed, and killed by the men she had been traveling with. Frugier would telephone fellow officer Don White, who was also familiar with Rose Cheremy locally. And Frugier would tell him that, and I quote, I've got your lady friend here in jail. And also state, and I quote, that she has something to share with us. Don White was now in on the event. Law enforcement personnel regularly interact with hospital emergency room personnel, and they get to know each other. That's the way it works, especially in small rural venues like the one in Eunice. Guillory was looking for a favor, hoping that Frugier could help her move Jeremy to another venue and out of the hospital. Frugier would oblige her, deciding to take Jeremy to the Eunice City Jail where she could detox. Frugier had a busy social agenda that night. He would be headed out to the Eunice Police Department annual ball. Only his night out at this event would be cut short. 
According to at least one account, about an hour later, another police officer on the force arrived at the ball and gave Frugé some bad news. He would let Frugé know that Jeremy, who was still in a Eunice City jail cell, was surely undergoing withdrawal symptoms, and they seemed to be getting worse. Frugé would leave the ball and head back to the jail, and once he got there, he would confirm that Jeremy indeed appeared to be going through a drug withdrawal. She was scratching her fingers raw on the jail cell walls, and she was bloodying her ankles by scratching them with her nails, or in one account, using a razor blade, however obtained. Frugier got on the phone and called a local doctor, who happened to be from the coroner's office. Dr. DeRowan arrived at the jail and gave her a shot, a sedative to calm her down. The doctor then suggested that she be removed from the jail and taken to the state facility in Jackson. Frugier agreed with Dr. DeRowan's assessment and then called East Louisiana State Hospital somewhere around midnight on the 20th. He would then make arrangements to move her out of the Eunice City Jail, calling Charity Hospital in Lafayette and securing an ambulance to take her to the state hospital in Jackson. While it was probably not required by police procedure, Frugier made the decision to accompany Jeremy that night to the state hospital. Riding with her in the ambulance, apparently this was the moment where more of the details of the fantastic story that is Rose Jeremy first began to be told. She was rather calm now, the effects of the sedative administered by Dr. DeRowan now starting to kick in. Frugier would also state in his later testimony under oath that she was, at this point, also quite lucid. Frugier decided he would use the time in the ambulance to ask her some routine questions, given her circumstance. What he heard back was anything less than routine. In fact, it was extraordinary. Jeremy told Frugier that she was en route from Florida to Dallas with two men who looked Cuban or Italian. The two men told Rose that they were going to kill the president in Dallas in just a few days. Most accounts of this story believe that Jeremy herself was not part of the plot, but she did have a stated purpose for traveling with these men. According to Rose, all three of them were participating in a drug trafficking event. Jeremy's role was to act as a courier of funds to be used to purchase heroin that was being delivered by a seaman on an incoming vessel. They were headed to Dallas, where she would pick up $8,000 in funds necessary to effectuate the purchase of the heroin shipment. The funds were being held by someone located in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas. In some accounts, this mystery man remains unidentified, and in others, he also combines roles with a person who may have had custody at that moment of Jeremy's 10-year-old son. Physical custody, that is. Other accounts have Jeremy's son in the custody of friends somewhere in Dallas at the time. Regardless, though, once the money was retrieved, the next step was for Jeremy to check into the Rice Hotel in Houston under an assumed name. For those of us not familiar with the geography of Texas, Houston is in close proximity to Galveston, 
and Galveston is a coastal city. And so from there, they would then proceed to the port at Galveston, Texas, where a ship was scheduled to arrive and a seaman on it was slated to deliver the heroin to Rose in exchange for the cash. There was more to the story. It seemed that Rose's involvement in the drug transaction would then require her to then transport the heroin to Mexico, accompanied by the two men. So what happened? Where were the men? You would then learn the rest of the story that led to her winding up in the hospital. You see, Rose's evening had started out at a rather unsavory bar known as the Silver Slipper Lounge. The Silver Slipper and a few other bars like it were well known along Highway 190 near Eunice. That strip of highway on 190 from that part of Louisiana all the way down to the Texas border was known in those days as a real haven for brothels. Any gas station might double as a brothel and prostitution was prominent in the corridor. Saying it politely, you could find pretty much anything you wanted there, drugs and sex being at the top of the list. Purportedly, it was a front for a prostitution operation run by the mob, and we'll get to more on that in a minute. At some point, after the two men and Rose arrived at the Silver Slipper, the men were met by a third party. There are varying accounts of what happened next at the Silver Slipper. The popularized account has both Rose and the two men all leaving the Silver Slipper together, and that account has them getting into their car and driving away, headed down Highway 190, just like in the JFK movie. And in that version of the story, very shortly after leaving the bar together in the car, an argument apparently ensued, and Rose was then thrown out of the vehicle, and then at some point hit by an oncoming car. Fruget's later testimony indicates that the true story might be different. According to Fruget, Rose said that the argument took place inside the Silver Slipper, and that the two men and the manager of the Silver Slipper, Hadley MacManuel, then threw her out. She was then forced to hitchhike on Highway 190, and was then hit by a car driven by one Frank Odom. It was Odom who then delivered her to Musa Hospital. In Fruget's deposition to the HSCA, he summed Jeremy's itinerary in Dallas in the following manner, and I quote, She said she was going to, number one, pick up some money, pick up her baby, and to kill Kennedy. That night, Fruget discounted Jeremy's comments. To him, at that moment, they were just drug-induced delusions. As I said, Fruget would ride with her to the state hospital in Jackson. It was a one- to two-hour ride on the night of the 20th. Once Jeremy, the patient, had been delivered to the state hospital, Fruget would head back home. Forgetting for the moment about the fantastic statements that this woman had made to him on the trip to the hospital. Unknowingly, at that moment, he had just delivered her to the same hospital that Lee Harvey Oswald had applied for a job at, a hospital that was some 100 miles or so away from New Orleans. And that incident had happened 
just a few months prior. What a startling coincidence. So just to recap once again, Frugé asked some routine questions in the ambulance on the way to the state hospital, and Cheremy would tell him that she was coming from Florida to Dallas with two men who were Italians or resembled Italians. They had stopped at this lounge, the Silver Slipper Lounge, and they had had a few drinks and had gotten into an argument. The manager of the lounge threw her out, and she got on the road and hitchhiked to catch a ride. And this is when she got hit by a vehicle. Rose wasn't done telling people about the upcoming assassination. She was still at the hospital on the day the president was killed, but getting better. And according to witnesses, Jeremy was watching television with a group of nurses around the time that day that President Kennedy's motorcade was headed through Dallas. And close to the very moment that Kennedy was shot, she would declare her startling prediction that it was about to happen. And she said it as she was watching television. And a handful of nurses watching television with her would hear her say it. And the story of her prognostication would then spread quickly throughout the hospital. She would say, this is when it's going to happen. At the time, according to witnesses, she was in a coherent state. And apparently this prediction was made moments before the president was actually shot. One can imagine the look on those nurses' faces when Rose made the statements that she did. We do know that the Dallas motorcade was not broadcast live on the major networks that day. So it is likely that when the nurses told this story later and described the television moment when Rose made this statement, well, what those nurses were likely referring to were the periodic news reports on the president's visit that were playing on local TV channels in areas that were not too far away from Dallas. It was not just nurses that heard things said by Rose Cheremy before the actual assassination. As recounted by James D'Eugenio in his essay on Rose Cheremy, Dr. Wayne Owen was an intern at the state hospital from LSU Medical School. Later, he would recount a story to the Madison Capital Times, a local newspaper, that he and other interns were told of a plot in advance of the assassination. According to one of the interns, Jeremy even made a statement implicating her former boss, Jack Ruby. Yes, that's right. Rose Jeremy did work for Jack Ruby. And yes, the story is getting even more fascinating. According to Owen, Jeremy told one of the other medical interns that one of the men involved in the plot was a man named Jack Rubenstein. Owen said that they shrugged it off at the time. But when they learned that Jack Rubenstein was actually Jack Ruby, the group grew quite concerned. We were all assured that something would be done about it by the FBI or someone. Yet, we never heard anything. Still, there were others who heard important statements made by Jeremy about the assassination. Dr. Victor J. Weiss, who, at the time, was the clinical director at East Louisiana State Hospital, was one of those individuals. Dr. Weiss is not without controversy related to his testimony. He purportedly interviewed Jeremy and had conversations with her. In those interviews and conversations, Jeremy, by certain accounts, 
revealed her association to Jack Ruby, and she also stated in that same interview that she had worked as a drug courier for Jack Ruby. Clearly, Frugier did not take seriously the comments which Jeremy made on the night of November 20th. And given her drug-induced state, that's understandable. But obviously, the president's assassination on November 22nd changed everything. Immediately after the murder of the president, Frugier called the hospital up in Jackson and told them, by no way in the world will you turn her loose until I get my hands on her. The hospital would tell Frugier that Rose was not going to be discharged anytime soon as she was not through with her drug detox. She was going nowhere at the moment. Frugier would once again head for the state hospital in Jackson, and this time it was to interview Jeremy regarding her statements made about her foreknowledge of President Kennedy's murder. On this occasion, as you might expect, Frugier conducted a much more thorough interview related to the topic. Frugier was faced with the issue you have in any sort of circumstance like this one. Not only was this a murder, but it was the murder of the President of the United States. It was high stakes. Frugier was dealing with a person who ostensibly had foreknowledge of some kind related to the assassination, and yet it was clear that she was a person who had a terrible drug addiction. All during that weekend, Francis Frugier and Don White contemplated whether they should come forward and tell what they had heard. White argued for silence, to just let it go, but Frugier would not do that. Frugier and White decided that they would, at the very least, tell their superiors at the Louisiana State Police. Well, Frugier then contacted his commanding officer, Captain Ben Morgan, and he relayed the story. Morgan's superior, Colonel Burbank, would hear the story too. Captain Morgan, by chance, happened to know Captain Will Fritz of the Dallas Police Department, and Morgan decided it would be a good idea if he himself called Fritz to relay what Frugier had heard and what they had found here, what they had right in their midst, what appeared to be a very important witness related to the murder of the president. And her name was Rose Cheremy. Well, Captain Morgan did just that. He called Will Fritz, the chief of homicide for the Dallas Police Department, and a character in this passion play that is very well known already to those listening to this podcast. But what happened next was incredibly perplexing. According to Frugier, and apparently Captain Morgan made the call in Frugier's presence, but after finishing the conversation, Morgan would turn to Frugier and say that Fritz was simply not interested. Not interested? What? It's almost inconceivable that a witness and a lead of this magnitude would be turned away by the investigating authorities right at the moment of the murder. But that is exactly what happened. It was a terrible tragedy in the pursuit of truth. Amidst allegations that the two men traveling with Jeremy were actually involved in the president's murder plot and that Ruby knew them. Allegations that Ruby was involved in a mob-related drug trafficking ring. Allegations that Ruby and Oswald knew each other. Why? Why? Why would authorities turn a blind eye to this 
less than a week after the assassination. Well, I guess they had their man, didn't they? And they had their narrative. So they really didn't need Rose Cheremy. Out, out, brief candle. Startled by the local Dallas investigator's lack of interest in her, Fruget then went to Cheremy herself and asked Rose directly if she had a desire to tell her story to the FBI. But she said no, stating that she did not want to get herself further involved. At some point in all of this, Fruget decided that the best course of action would be to call the FBI in Houston. And he then made that communication. But the FBI also told him that they were not interested and that they already had their man. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald. It was not surprising, but it also was, again, perplexing. Why was everybody turning a cold shoulder to this situation? Clearly, it should be investigated. Fruget was still bound and determined to see this one through. He then turned to more pressing matters about Rose Jeremy. He knew it was imperative that he determine whether she was telling the truth and was reliable. That was critical in the circumstance. So Fruget decided to start by investigating the drug deal aspect of her statements. If those were proven to be true, that would say a lot for her credibility around the Kennedy matter. So, first things first. Fruget decided that he would have the drug deal portion of her story investigated by Texas state troopers and U.S. Customs, and so he contacted those offices. The officers confirmed the name of the seaman on board who was to deliver the drugs, and the officers were able to confirm that Jeremy also had identified the correct ship coming into Galveston. Jeremy's reservations at the Rice Hotel in Houston, made under an assumed name, were checked out by customs and found to be legitimate. The contact in Dallas was also checked out. This was the man who was supposedly in possession of the funds that were needed for the drug transaction. And in at least one version of the story, this may have been the man who supposedly was holding her 10-year-old son, in essence for collateral, to ensure her compliance with the plan and silence before, during, and after its operation. Others say her son was with friends. The name that Rose gave for the man in Dallas, when investigated, revealed that he was an underworld figure and a suspected narcotics dealer. Names revealed in available research include an alias of Leo Parker, who may have had a last name of Poriurillo. Everything about this particular drug deal was checking out. Fruget even went so far as to go through Jeremy's luggage for clues, clues about this bizarre woman and her bizarre tale. Critics of the Jeremy story will point to the fact that the HSCA reviewed this part of the evidence, and they were unsuccessful in their attempt to retrieve any corroborating documents from U.S. Customs on this particular drug investigation for the Port of Galveston. And the HSCA was equally unsuccessful and their attempt to locate any of the customs agents named by Fruget in his testimony, agents that were participants in the investigation itself. The records seem to be missing. <laughs> Imagine that. Now, to be fair, 
Since then, some documents actually have surfaced, and some documents reveal what is the likely name of the ship and the name of the seaman. According to researcher Larry Hancock, the ship likely was the SS Maturata of British registry, and the seaman's name was Luther, with initials LJ, but with an unknown last name. Fruget decided that the next step was to take Jeremy from Louisiana to Houston, where they could engage more directly with customs agents and others related to the drug deal that she had described. It was also a likely way to move her across the state border and back to Texas, in accordance with the boss's wishes to get her the hell out of Louisiana. So after her discharge into Fruget's custody, Fruget and Jeremy and a second state patrolman, Wayne Marion, flew together to Houston in a small state patrol airplane a Cessna 180 by some account. Now this story keeps getting better all the time. Sitting in the back seat of the airplane, at some point during the flight, Jeremy noticed that a newspaper was on the floor between she and Fruget. She picked the newspaper up and began reading it. There was still plenty of press about the assassination flooding the papers and every other media outlet. A headline caught Rose's eye, and she began to read it. As Fruget recalled, it said something like, Investigators had not been able to establish a relationship between Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. When Jeremy read this headline, she started to giggle. She then added, Them two queer sons of a bitches, they've been shacking up for years. She added that she knew this to be true from her experience of working for Ruby. According to a later memo by Frank Maloche, one of Garrison's investigators, Jeremy would repeat this same story at some point after the flight to Captain Ben Morgan. Again, Morgan was Fruget's boss at the Louisiana State Police. Now, let's be clear. It's not likely that Oswald and Ruby have been shacking up for years. But... That doesn't preclude some sort of homosexual relationship between the two. Perhaps, at least though, some hyperbole was present here by the Honorable Rose Jeremy. So there you go. Another startling fact that was now front and center in front of Fruget. Not only did Ruby know Oswald, but according to Jeremy, they were intimate. What should Fruget do next with his hand grenade of a fact set. And there were other startling revelations, including the fact that Rose had been a stripper in Jack Ruby's nightclub in Dallas. I know, somehow hard to believe, but later verified by Lieutenant Fruget. Critics have never seen any documentation to back this confirmation up. That is, that she worked for Ruby and was a stripper. But it's mainly supported by the assertion made by Francis Fruget in a memo. And there is more. Rose had seen Oswald at Ruby's Carousel Club in Dallas. That's helpful because it corroborates others who have said the same thing. Keep in mind, the date is around November 27th, less than a week after the assassination. In Houston, they eventually released Rose Jeremy, and for all intents and purposes, the investigation of her tale as it related to the JFK assassination was ceased right then. Just days after the assassination, one of the most prominent leads in the case 
was caught and then released, so to speak. Of course, the other obvious point here is that Rose was released in Texas, out of the jurisdiction of the Louisiana State Police, and into a jurisdiction where no one wanted to touch her. It was like touching an electrified third rail, as far as the Texas authorities were concerned. So Fruget simply went back to Louisiana. It still seems strange that they released her completely from their purview if she was actually involved in a major drug deal. Forget the case about the president for a minute, but the truth is they did just that. They released her. Just too messy with too many loose strings to tug on that might lead to the JFK assassination matter. That's speculation on my part, but probably not an unreasonable leap of fact. And remember, by Joan Mellon's account of this story, it was under instruction from Colonel Burbank of the Louisiana State Police to, and I quote, get her the hell out of here. Apparently, the good colonel wanted no part of a woman knee-deep in the Kennedy conspiracy to be within his jurisdiction. And he had a brief moment of time where nobody cared and she could be moved out of Louisiana and back to Texas and out of Burbank's hair. Fruget seemed to have gotten the message from Burbank that some dogs should be left right there lying on the floor. And that's exactly what happened. For a few years more anyway, until the garrison investigation came along and then things would heat up once again. Sadly, though, Rose would meet a frightful ending less than two years later in 1965, some two years before the garrison folks would once again get back on the trail of the assassins, which, as we now know, began to truly happen in late 1966 and in early 1967. Look, Rose Jeremy was no saint, and I suspect she was quite good at lying. She had some 35 or more purported aliases. She was born Melba Christine Mercades. For an interesting bit of trivia, just fast forward to the very end of this episode, and you'll hear me call out many of the known aliases that she went under. For those of you doing research, this could be helpful in tracing her into other documents where you may have not previously believed that there was a tie-in to Rose Jeremy. She had a long rap sheet, which included, among other things, vagrancy, prostitution, larceny, auto theft, various narcotics charges, and drunken disorderly behavior. But despite all of that, a major question about her is whether or not she had some level of informant status, perhaps related principally to narcotics trafficking and prostitution rings. There seems to be evidence pointing at this possibility, and many researchers have raised this question, given her long rap sheet and apparent ease in which she was able to remove herself from the charges without facing much in the way of jail time. She was arrested over 50 times in 10 different states, according to popularly available arrest records for her. There were numerous occasions documented by the House Select Committee on Assassinations where Rose Jeremy made informant disclosures to the FBI as well. And these were mostly related to drug deals and prostitution rings purportedly run by the mob and located in Oklahoma and Texas. Some of her allegations proved to be false. 
Some were verified as true, and some could simply not be verified at all. Finally, there are, I believe, at least a handful of JFK records that pertain to Rose Jeremy that were withheld for the longest of time. I'm not sure if they have now all been released or not. I, I didn't have time to check before this episode was produced. But the point here is that these documents have been some of the ones that, for a very long time, were not released by the government to the public. They were withheld by our government. And you have to wonder why. If any of our listeners have an update on those documents, then please do let us know here at the podcast. You can email me at podcastjfk at gmail.com. She committed at least one documented suicide attempt in 1947, and she was, and I quote, believed to be insane at that time. Later in 1961, she was ruled by a court to be, and I quote, criminally insane. And her son, who grew up to be a medical doctor, would later ponder, what really is the definition of someone who is criminally insane? I asked the same question. Given her addiction to heroin, it is not surprising that she was institutionalized for medical care several times with, and I quote, psychotic and psychopathic behavior noted. Sadly, this is part of the life of a person with a serious drug addiction. Much of this story lay silent until 1967 when it was unearthed again as part of the Garrison investigation. But before we say more about Garrison's involvement, let's close the chapter on her life because that moment too culminated with an accident on a lonely road at night in rural Louisiana. I don't know about you, but this is a great episode and it's way too long. So we're going to stop and have a sandwich and continue this whole discussion about Rose Jeremy in episode 167. Thank you for listening to episode 166 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.